And uh, if, if, you, uh, if you have your Bibles, open them to the book of Jonah. We will have the scripture on the screen, so if you don't have your Bible, that's okay. We'll have it up there. But uh, we are in a series in Jonah. We are at chapter 4. I had considered making this the last message in Jonah, but honestly, that would have left way too much meat on the bones. So we're going to do two messages in the fourth chapter of Jonah, so this week and next. And uh, the title of our our uh, series is Jonah, the Absurdity of God's Compassion. And um, actually, this week we'll get to the heart of why uh, we titled it that way. It's not that it is absurd, but it is from a human vantage point quite often absurd. And uh, thank you, that's, that's great. Um, one through five of that chapter, however, to start with, I'm going to pick up with the last verse in chapter three because it's a continuation of that Story. So if you would join me, and by the way, the subtitle for this message is uh, Salvation and Vengeance Belong to the Lord. So uh, Jonah 3, beginning in verse 10, we will read, When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, He relented and did not bring on them the destruction He had threatened. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, or Yahweh, Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord... Take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, Is it right, or maybe better read, is it good, is it tov, that's the Hebrew word, good, is it good for you to be angry? Jonah had gone out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. Please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, the grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Lord, may it endure in our hearts and may we be spoken to by your word so that our hearts are set aright, that they are given life, and that we might give life to others. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 If we're good Christians whatever that is, and somebody wrongs us, what do we do? Well, we entrust ourselves to the one who judges justly, at least if we're obeying 1 Peter 2.23, not retaliating, not returning evil for evil, but returning good. Amen? But what do we expect, even if we do that? Well, we expect that God will give them their comeuppance, right? You know, that they'll get what's coming to them. That, that the God we imagine is an extension of our version of justice. What happens if they don't get their comeuppance? What happens if instead of getting their comeuppance, they prosper? <laughs> I realized recently in my own life that if I were being honest... Deep down, I was angry. 
And when I asked the question, who am I angry at, there was only one possible answer to the question, and that is God. As the case stood, I was angry at God for Him not doing His job. Well, at least the job I thought was His. That's the kind of anger Jonah is experiencing in our text. This is how I came to see that I am Jonah, which, by the way, is not very flattering. If you've read the story, you know that. And I suspect, if we're all honest, that we are Jonah. That we think God should do things a certain way, and when He doesn't, we get quite upset with Him. It may not come out in a very conscious way, but deep down, I think we might well live with such an anger toward God. Is it good for you to be angry? That's God's question for Jonah. And one God asks us when we are angry. It's a question we should ask ourselves when we are angry as well. There's a variety of ways in which it might be answered, for there's more than one reason to be angry. But at the end of the day, whether justified or unjustified anger, the question remains, is it good for you to be angry? Is it tov? God saw everything that He had made and it was very good. Tov. Is it good for you to be angry? In our text, we discover that even when anger is justifiable, it may still not be good. You see, the question really isn't about whether it's morally right to be angry, but whether it's good. Is it in keeping with God's ways in the world? See, anger may be morally correct or morally right, But God, who is perfect, often lays down His anger for compassion. And since He is good, He defines what good is, then good is to be like Him. In the context of loving our enemies, Jesus said, Be perfect, therefore, as your Heavenly Father is perfect. That could be read. Meet the highest standard, therefore, as your Heavenly Father meets the highest standard. Good is ultimately defined by likeness to the Heavenly Father, and the Heavenly Father has this odd tendency to lay aside vengeance and choose compassion in its place. Jonah, the the book, could be split into two parts. You've got chapters 1 and 2 and chapters 3 and 4, and they run parallel to each other. They both begin with the word of the Lord came to Jonah. And they both have a response from Jonah, They both have a mission to the Gentiles, the sailors in chapters 1 and 2, and the Ninevites in chapters 3 and 4. uh, The first part ends with Jonah in the belly of a a great fish, and the second part ends with Jonah in the belly of Nineveh, which would be a great fish that would swallow him up to death in his mind. You have both of these going on, and the, the, the first one ends with Jonah crying out in a psalm, Salvation belongs to the Lord, and it was it was more of a... Less of a rejoicing and more of a, okay, I'll I'll give in to that. Okay, I'll I'll agree to that. And if we were to summarize what chapters 4 is about is vengeance belongs to the Lord. And we're not so sure Jonah's ready to agree with that. Uh, But the time we're done. God has chosen compassion over Jonah's concept of justice. Now, justice is a curious beast. Salvation and vengeance 
are the two sides of the same justice coin, if you will. For salvation to be an act of justice, vengeance must also be involved. A simple example, to save the multitude of children who are slaves in sex trafficking requires vengeance or punishment upon those who sell them and enslave them. Right? The justice system must get involved. In simple terms, salvation for one requires vengeance upon another. In that balance, we have what we refer to as the scales of justice. If one balances out the other, it creates order. But here's the the catch to all of that. God's ways supersede that, and Jonah doesn't like it that way. Jonah is angry because vengeance belongs to the Lord, and the Lord has decided to lay it down, and Jonah doesn't want him to. Entrusting vengeance to God means that we lay it down. But all too often, at least in my case, I can't speak for you, my assumption is that God will let them have it. And that often turns out to be wrong. God often chooses to absorb His wrath upon Himself, by Himself, and not dish it out to His creatures. We're going to explore this text, uh, these five verses, really. Um, and Jonah's anger in, in two messages, but today we're going to do so under three headings. Jonah's anger, Jonah's theology, and Jonah's waiting. And um, let's look at first at Jonah's anger, and let's read verse uh, 1 again, if you would. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong. Or literally, to Jonah, uh, this was an exceedingly great evil. And he became angry. Jonah was burning mad. As far as Jonah is concerned, this development of the repentance of the Ninevites and God relenting from pouring out disaster upon the city is not something to celebrate. It's an exceedingly great evil. Great, as you know, has been one of the key themes throughout the the book of Jonah. Everything's great. Everything, everything, everything is great. And evil has been a theme throughout this book as well. But the two have not been brought together until now. God's salvation of the Ninevites to Jonah is an exceedingly great evil. Not just a great evil, an exceedingly great evil. As for Ra, or evil, Jonah was to preach against the the Ninevites because of their Ra, their evil ways. The Ninevites repented of their evil ways and their violence. God did not bring about, therefore, the Ra, the destruction on them, but now... We have a great evil, which is God's repentance, in Jonah's mind. And the Hebrew word for anger means to burn. We capture it best in our word, incensed. Jonah was incensed. He was on fire mad at God. That word is used five times in this book. Once when the Ninevite king declared, who knows? Uh, God may yet relent with compassion and turn from his being incensed. That's in chapter 3, verse 9. And then four times in this chapter, we're told something about Jonah being incensed. So it'll be our theme both this week and next. But why is Jonah so angry? That's what we really want to look at most closely today. Why is Jonah so angry? And I think the Cain and Abel story help us a bit here. Um, I I want you to note the parallels between Jonah and his anger and Cain and his anger. 
Uh, we, we read in Genesis 4, verse 6 and 7, Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, incensed? Why is your face downcast? Is, if you do what is tov, good, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is tov, good, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. And of course, the Lord asked Jonah, Is it tov for you to be angry? Is it good for you to be angry? Cain asked the question, am I my brother's keeper? And, of course, Jonah, when he first (laughs) is told to go to Nineveh and preach, thinking that God might deliver them, he flees to go the other way, saying, in effect, I'm not their keeper. I am not my brother's keeper. You have nothing to do with it. Cain would become a restless wanderer. Israel became a restless wanderer because of Assyria. That's where Nineveh is the capital of. Because of Israel's lack of repentance. Cain went east of Eden. Jonah goes out east of Nineveh. I mean, the parallels are too many to be just ignored in this uh, section. And why were the two of them angry? In Cain's case, he was angry because God chose to give favor to Abel and not Cain. Yes, because Abel's offering was uh, uh, from a more generous heart and Cain's from a stingy heart. But in Cain's vantage point, that's neither here nor there. God's giving favor to my brother, and I don't like it. Well, wait, in our story, Jonah's angry because God's showing favor to the Ninevites, and he doesn't like it. Never mind that their repentance was far more genuine, far more real than any that the Israelites had provided at just about any point in their history. What did each of them need to do? Cain... And Jonah, what did each need to do? Well, in Cain's case, he he needed to capture that crouching sin offering at his door and match it with deeds of repentance. And in Jonah's case and Israel's case, much the same. If, If there's still time for Nineveh, surely there was time for Israel if she acted in true repentance. Some Jewish commentators on Jonah suggest that Jonah saw God's relenting from destroying Nineveh because of her genuine repentance, as a sign that God would not spare Israel because of her lack of repentance. Therefore, Assyria would invade Israel. That particular note is from Abraham in Ezra. I don't know how to say his middle name. It's got too many consonants and not enough vowels. But um, he's in the 12th century. But But that gives you a sense, and that was consistent with many Jewish commentators, that that the very fact that the Ninevites repented and God spared them was a sign that Israel would not be spared because they had not repented. But surely if Nineveh, with only 40 days left, if there was time for them to repent, surely there was time for the Israelites to repent. Whether Jonah understood this or not, and I suspect he did, certainly the first readers of the book would have understood it after it had been put into Scripture. Then Cain, just going back to Cain and Abel, or Cain versus Jonah again, Cain took it into his hands to kill Abel. Jonah certainly would have killed Nineveh, but he couldn't. They were a little too big for him. Vengeance belongs to the Lord, as does salvation. And when God doesn't do with vengeance what we want, and he saves instead, we can be a little bothered, to say the least, or hot, as Jonah was. You see, this book is not a mockery of silly old Jonah who just doesn't get God's mercy. If it is a mockery at all, it is of us as God's people 
who, having received mercy, often don't want to extend it to our enemies. Behind the thinking that others don't deserve God's mercy is the thinking that we do deserve God's mercy. In Deuteronomy 8, the Lord, wants, the Lord warns Israel through Moses of the danger that His blessing could bring upon them if they forget that it is all pure grace. In the midst of a lengthy appeal about this in Deuteronomy 8, verses 10 through 18, we read that if you forget all the Lord did for you, quote, you may say to yourself, my power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. But remember the Lord your God, for it is He who gives you the ability to produce wealth, and so confirms His covenant, which He swore to your ancestors as it is today. You see, if they think that they produce their own good lives, they would have the wrong attitude toward others and toward God. And if we think that we produced our own good lives, which is the American ideal, we then begin to think that others fail to have such a life because they didn't produce what they needed to, and it lessens our capacity for compassion. But Jonah likely knew better than to think that Israel deserved God's mercy. Let's look at Jonah's theology, and let's read here in verse 2. I'm going to read verse 1 again just to tie into this. But, but to Jonah, this seemed very wrong. This is an exceedingly great evil, and he became hot. He prayed to the Lord, Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That, that is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. I knew it. Jonah reveals something of why he fled to begin with. Now, now some suggest, many, many theologians, in fact, will suggest that, that you can't trust Jonah here, that this isn't really why he fled to Tarshish, that, that Jonah's lying here like he might have in some other place, because, to be sure, Jonah's not the most trustworthy character in the book, okay? So I get that. But there's nothing in the context to suggest that this is a falsification. In fact, the context answers this as if it was, in fact, true. Everything in chapter 4 works off the premise that this was true with Jonah. So I'm going with taking it as it looks, on the surface, easy read, this is really right, this is what Jonah was thinking. These lines that he says about God, I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love. They are found many places in the Old Testament, but they originate in God's self-revelation to Moses in Exodus 34. That story begins in Exodus 32. Moses had been gone a while up on the mountain receiving the law of God. You're probably familiar with that. And he comes down and what are they doing at the bottom? They'd made a golden calf. And so the Lord informs him before he even goes down that they have indeed made a golden calf, which they named Yahweh and credited with getting them out of Egypt. I mean, you talk about idolatry to the max. This is about as dumb as you can get when it comes to idolatry. So it turns out, in fact, that the Israelites are idol worshipers as much as the Ninevites. That's the reality of who they are. 
And in Exodus 32, we read this. I have seen these people, the Lord said to Moses, and they are a stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone so that my anger may burn hot against them, that I may destroy them. Then I will make you into a great nation. But Moses then intercedes in that intercession. He says, quote, turn from your fierce anger, relent, and do not bring this evil, this disaster on your people, this raw And, of course, God did turn from his fierce anger and relent. Note that line is also tagged on to the end of that revelation of God, compassionate and gracious, who relents from bringing disaster. It's tagged right in there. So Jonah's thinking right back to these events. The Israelites expressed in that story at that time zero repentance. Now, a little later in the story, there is some surface repentance, much later in the story, after some things break out upon them and so forth, some surface repentance. And there were still about 3,000 who were killed that day as a consequence of this. So they did get mercy. They weren't entirely destroyed, and God's going to make a nation through Moses. No, they're spared, but there were some consequences. And then, of course, Moses, after he gets down, he grinds up the first stone tablets that God had carved out with his finger, mixed it with water, making the people drink it. So, of course, new stone tablets have to be made. So Moses cuts out some stone tablets. He heads up the mountain, and and, and he's having a heart-to-heart with the Lord uh, in chapter 33. And that heart-to-heart with the Lord, he says, You've been telling me to lead your people, but you haven't told me who you are sending with me. You've been saying that you you know me by name, but I'd like to know you by name for you to show me what you are like. Your way so that I might know you. The Lord promises then to send his presence to Moses or with Moses. And then in in answer to Moses' desire to know him, he promises to pass before him so that Moses might see God. And he prefaces that vision with this. He says, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. That's in Exodus 33. And throughout this whole storyline, Israel, and you just keep going right through numbers, keep going right through the, the rest, they keep deserving death. They keep, God keeps saying, I'm going to destroy them. And Moses keeps interceding and he relents. I mean, repeatedly, over and over. So Moses gets these two chiseled tablets. He hikes up Mount Sinai. The Lord passes before Moses and we read this. Then the Lord came down in a cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name Yahweh. And he passed in front of Moses proclaiming, Yahweh, Yahweh, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet, he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. Interesting set of verses, particularly that last part that's just kind of stuck on there about yet... He doesn't leave the guilty unpunished. Well, Moses, when he goes back up on the mountain, he's, go, he's there for 40 days. And Jonah, you might note in his quotation in our text today, did not quote any of the parts about God's faithfulness or not leaving the guilty unpunished. In fact, that's where his problem lies. He wants God to uphold that end of it, and it often appears that he is not, so he's got a problem. He's angry with God. What about not leaving the guilty unpunished? Though, if anyone's guilty, and we all know this to be true, we looked at who the Ninevites were early in the series, if anyone's guilty, they are. They are surely guilty. The most heinous acts known to humanity. Wicked people. If 
in, in, in that quotation from Exodus where God reveals himself, the truth is, if the accent in that was not on God's compassion rather than on his not leaving the guilty unpunished, Israel would not exist. They would have been obliterated, gone. But the accent is on God's compassion. Jonah knows that the accent is on compassion, and he wants a different standard for his enemies. Of course, we know that God does not leave the guilty unpunished, though he often has an interesting way of dealing with that punishment by bearing it himself. He does not leave that punishment alone. Philip Carey rightly asserts, quote, To proclaim the name of the Lord is to announce mercy, but not to forget justice. The two-sidedness of the proclamation does not propose a neat formula for balancing mercy and justice, but rather leaves this up to the judgment of God, whose justice and mercy can both be trusted. Jonah didn't think so. What does it mean to say that the Lord is compassionate and gracious? Well, that's not left for our imaginations either. That's not left as some sort of abstract idea. The Lord is compassionate, whatever that means. No, we actually get clear idea of what that means. So, for instance, earlier in Exodus, we read this. If you lend money to one of my people among, who, uh, among you who is needy, do not treat it like a business deal. Now, of course, most of us would think, well, it is a business deal. What are you talking about? <laughs> that sounds like a business deal. I'm lending money to somebody who needs it. Right. So his word is, don't treat it that way. Charge no interest. If you take your neighbor's cloak as a pledge, this this is even better than charge no interest. If you take your neighbor's cloak as a pledge, this is for a loan, return it by sunset because that cloak is the only covering your neighbor has. Well, what's the point of getting it if you keep returning it every time they need it? What else can they sleep in? When they cry out to me, I will hear for I am compassionate that's what we mean by compassion he looks at people in their need and he he feels sorry for them he takes pity upon them he wants to comfort them laying your business transactions aside we see this compassion of the lord and his call to 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 his people to take care of widows orphans and strangers The Lord feels compassion for His creatures. He knows that we are but dust. Throughout Israel's history, the verse uh, in Exodus 34 about the Lord being gracious and compassionate is referenced as the reason that Israel is not destroyed by the Lord. I mean, that, that, those verses are brought up many times. And here Jonah knows that it's the reason that Israel is not destroyed. Jonah knows that because the Lord is gracious and compassionate, he will take pity on the Ninevites, and he doesn't like that. He does take pity on the Ninevites, no thanks to Jonah. His heart is not in it. He does eventually preach to them, but again, a fairly heartless message. We looked at last week. That the Ninevites repented can only be credited as a miraculous work of the Lord. As, again, Carey puts it, quote, there is nothing more characteristic of the burning anger of the Lord than his turning away from it. Think about that. There is nothing more characteristic of the burning anger of the Lord than his turning away from it. James Bruckner gets to the heart of the issue when he says this, quote, 
God does not suggest that justice should not or will not eventually be done. He simply argues that he would rather forgive and take the risk of letting evil persist in the world. This is a difficult dilemma for all people of faith. And it is. How does a good God let evil people keep getting away with it? Suddenly, Jonah doesn't sound so unreasonable, does he? You see, in this particular case that Jonah's dealing with, the Lord being compassionate and gracious means that the vengeance against the violent Ninevites which Jonah had entrusted to the Lord will not be poured out on them, and the Israelites will be taken captive. Now, there's some other factors in this we'll look at next week. I don't have time today to look at. There's so much more that's involved here. This this would have been a three-hour sermon, so we can't do that. But here we go. The Israelites will be taken care of. Now, the question for us is, who are the Ninevites in our life, in your life, that you think deserve God's wrath? Is it all the abortion doctors? Is it the people who are trying to destroy our culture? Is it the liberals? Is it the conservatives? Is it your spouse? Is it the pastor at your previous church? Is it the pastor at your current church? Wait a minute. How would we do if God decided not to punish them? At least not now. How would we do? And finally, our third heading, Jonah's Jonah's waiting. Read with me in verses 3 through 5. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, is it right? Is it good for you to be angry? Jonah had gone out and sat down at a place east of the city, or maybe more literally, Jonah went out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. Without the sense of order that Jonah had that, by which the the universe ought to run. Everything is balanced out. Wrongs are righted. Without that, life is not worth living. Or so he thinks. Now, he's not suicidal. In fact, he's quite a bit contradictory because he does go out and build a shelter to protect him from the heat. But if you want to die, why why do that? So he's not suicidal, but he does think that non-existence is better than existence in a world that does not set things right. And that's the world that he's seeing right now. For him, to, to set things right means destroy the Ninevites. And ultimately, Jonah is right. Ultimately, Nineveh will be destroyed by the Babylonians. However, that comes a century later, long after Assyria destroys Israel. Listen, that world was hard for Jonah And I'll be honest with you, living in an already not yet world is hard for us. I know I'm treading on thin ice here, but I'll tread anyway. I think if any of us are honest, this past weekend with the turning over of Roe v. Wade has left many of us just a bit confused. 
not because we weren't for protecting the innocent in the womb. We're very much for that. But because we aren't for gloating. And what seems like a victory in some ways for some, we realize, well, maybe the, the work is still to be done and nothing's really changed. We've got so many people to care for and so many people to help. See, this, this problem that, that we have culturally existed long before Roe v. Wade. That didn't create the problem, and guess what? Overturning it didn't solve the problem. But somehow I think we often thought it did. And so it happens, and we're just kind of scratching our heads and wondering, what was it we were after again? How do we get there? And I think we've got some questioning to do in our hearts. Well, I'll get back to preaching. It's hard to live in an already not yet world. Peter addresses this in his second letter. He says, But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping His promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with the roar, and the elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. God has not given up on justice, but He does wait for the sake of giving people an opportunity to come to repentance. That's what happened to, in chapter 3 for the Ninevites. And now they have an opportunity to walk it out. God will wait, and so must Jonah. It's hard to say for sure where Jonah was in verses 1 through 5. Probably uh, still in the city or on his way out of the city. I, I, I don't know. But we get to verse 5. He, he went out and sat down place east of the city. Translators try to... had gone out, you know, trying to backdate it. But, but he's somewhere. It doesn't really matter. The story doesn't seem to be too concerned with the answer to that question. But, but he's, he's either in the city seeing the repentance. He's walking from the city on his way out to where he's going to be. It's hard to say. But he certainly isn't staying in the city to share more about the God who sent him once he sees this repentance. And when he gets there, he makes this shelter to shade him while he waits. And we'll look at that more next week. But evidently, the the shelter isn't very helpful. For as we'll see, uh, the Lord has to give him a tree for that purpose. So his efforts at building a shelter are are pretty lame. But he's going to wait for 40 days here. What is he waiting for? Well, evidently, he's still hoping for God to destroy the city. That would, be, that would be the one obvious answer. Or he's hoping that God will at least kill some of them, maybe like he did the Israelites. Either way, he's going to wait it out. Is Jonah concerned about appearing to be a false prophet? That's a possibility that some commentators go to. I mean, he's angry at God. Because now that God has relented, it will appear that he was false. Because he said 40 days and Nineveh will be destroyed. Well, he might be. I don't, I don't think the text goes there per se. Um, the reality is, the thing that he's waiting for is what we wait for. And that's for justice to be settled. For somehow everything to be turned right. We wait for God to rectify all things. To, as some scholars put it, set them to rights. 
In our waiting, we need to understand where Jonah got it wrong. It, it's not as if, and this is a quote from um, Carrie again, but it's not as if we should never desire justice or even celebrate the wrath of God as Nahum does. It is good news when the oppressor is toppled, the terrorist is caught, and the torturer enjoys no impunity. The arrival of justice is heartening for the afflicted. The Lord does indeed, quote, take vengeance on his enemies, Nahum 1-2, because he is the enemy of all destroyers of the earth, and he destroys them. Scripture references there. And then he says this, The great danger is that instead of rejoicing at the vindication of the afflicted, we self-righteously identify ourselves as the afflicted and the victimized, taking pity on ourselves and not on others. So that in our imagination, the Lord becomes a weapon in our campaign to destroy our enemies and an instrument for our own vengefulness rather than the judge of the whole earth. I think that is a valid danger. The great danger is that instead of rejoicing at the vindication of the afflicted, we self-righteously identify ourselves as the afflicted and the victimized, taking pity on ourselves and not on others, so that, so that in our imagination the Lord becomes a weapon in our campaign to destroy our enemies, an instrument for our own vengefulness rather than the judge of the whole earth. Do you imagine the Lord as being against your enemies or as desiring their salvation? Do you think that the Lord somehow is an extension of your own vengeful attitude toward fill in that blank with your enemies. As I said at the beginning, I discovered in my own soul that I did. (laughs) Not consciously, but deep down, if I were honest, I was viewing the Lord as the very one who would carry out the vengeful things that I had supposedly left at His feet. (laughs) Of course, left at His feet to do with what I wanted, not left at His feet to do with what He wanted. A little detail. The fact is, we are all unjust and must be made just by the Lord. This is always a work of grace. And we are to pray the Lord does that very work for our enemies as well. In closing, I just want to ask a couple of questions. One, have you gone to the Lord in repentance? Have you gone to Him with the fact that you are unjust and need to be made just by Him? That's our starting point. If you have not, I implore you to do so today. We would be glad to pray with you before you go today. Catch any, any of us, really, any of the elders, any of the folks that maybe you're with, somebody you meet, they would be glad to pray with you. I would be glad to pray with you. And if you have done that, then I appeal to you that you live your life out of that mercy that you've received, not viewing yourselves as better than those who have not yet received mercy, but as Ones who are rescued by amazing grace. Amen? Are you okay with entrusting vengeance to God, knowing that He may choose to bear it Himself and not pour it out on your enemies? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Help us to identify those places in our heart 
where we have ill will toward our enemy. And if we're honest, maybe we're a bit disgruntled with you over how you're treating our enemy. Change our hearts. Help us to be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect or to live to the highest standard as our Heavenly Father fulfills it. In Jesus' name, amen.